Hello, and welcome to Great Souls, Great Stories Presented by The Seagull Project. We are so pleased to be back after a wonderful response to our first episode with our next installment, Great Souls, Kingdom, Crumbs. I thought I knew what divisiveness was nearly four years ago, but I know now that it was only the beginning of a quickly blossoming chasm that will most likely define the majority of my life. When heels are dug so deeply into the reddened mud and those in power watch over the battle, the majority of the population is left with the end product of their war, the crumbs. In divisive times, we should look toward the space between each other. Empathy is something to be worked at, and I believe that the most effective bridge between perspectives are stories. Gavin Reeve here, Artistic Director of The Seagull Project, and in this episode we have put together a variety of stories that address this very unique time in history. Don't worry, no plague tales. Starting with the hopeful imagination of James Thurber, onto the haunted dystopia of Shirley Jackson, and bring it all home with the hilarious Soviet Kafka-esque transformations of Lev Luntz. So, without further ado, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, by James Thurber, as read by Rob Burgess. We're going through. The commander's voice was like thin ice breaking. He wore his full dress uniform with the heavily braided white cap pulled down rakishly over one cold gray eye. We can't make it, sir. It's spoiling for a hurricane if you ask me. I'm not asking you, Lieutenant Berg, said the commander. Throw on the power lights. Rev her up to 8,500. We're going through. The pounding of the cylinders increased. The commander stared at the ice forming on the pilot window. He walked over and twisted a row of complicated dials. Switch on number eight auxiliary, he shouted. Switch on number eight auxiliary, repeated Lieutenant Berg. Full strength in number three turret, shouted the commander. Full strength in number three turret! The crew, bending to their various tasks in the huge, hurtling, eight-engined Navy hydroplane, looked at each other and grinned. The old man'll get us through, they said to one another. The old man ain't afraid of hell. Not so fast. You're driving too fast, said Mrs. Mitty. What are you driving so fast for? Hmm, said Walter Mitty. He looked at his wife in the seat beside him with shocked astonishment. She seemed grossly unfamiliar, like a strange woman who'd yelled at him in a crowd. You were up to 55, she said. You know I don't like to go more than 40. You were up to 55. Walter Mitty drove on toward Waterbury in silence. The roaring of the SN-202 through the worst storm in 20 years of Navy flying, fading in the remote, intimate airways of his mind. You're tensed up again, said Mrs. Mitty. It's one of your days. I wish you'd let Dr. Renshaw look you over. Walter Mitty stopped the car in front of the building where his wife went to have her hair done. Remember to get those overshoes while I'm having my hair done, she said. I don't need overshoes, said Mitty. She put her mirror back into her bag. We've been all through that, she said, getting out of the car. You're not a young man any longer. He raced the engine a little. 
Why don't you wear your gloves? Have you lost your gloves? Walter Mitty reached in a pocket and brought out the gloves. He put them on, but after she had turned and gone into the building and he had driven onto a red light, he took them off again. Pick it up, brother, snapped a cop as the light changed, and Mitty hastily pulled on his gloves and lurched ahead. He drove around the streets aimlessly for a time, and then he drove past the hospital on his way to the parking lot. It's the millionaire banker, Wellington McMillan, said the pretty nurse. Yes, said Walter Mitty, removing his gloves slowly. Who has the case? Dr. Renshaw and Dr. Benbow, but there are two specialists here. Dr. Remington from New York and Dr. Pritchard Mitford from London. He flew over. A door opened down a long, cool corridor, and Dr. Renshaw came out. He looked distraught and haggard. Hello, Mitty, he said. We're having the devil's own time with Macmillan, the millionaire banker and close personal friend of Roosevelt. Obstriosis of the ductal tract. Tertiary. Wish you'd take a look at him. Glad to, said Mitty. In the operating room, there were whispered introductions. Dr. Remington, Dr. Mitty, Dr. Pritchard Mitford, Dr. Mitty. I've read your book on streptothricosis, said Pritchard Mitford, shaking his hands. A brilliant performance, sir. Thank you, said Walter Mitty. Didn't know you were in the States, Mitty, grumbled Remington. Calls to Newcastle bringing Mitford and me up here for a tertiary. You are very kind, said Mitty. A huge, complicated machine connected to the operating table with many tubes and wires began at this moment to go pocketa, pocketa, pocketa. The new anesthetizer's giving way, shouted an intern. There's no one in the East who knows how to fix it. Quiet man said Mitty in a low, cool voice. He sprang to the machine, which was now going, pocket-a-pocket-a-queep, pocket-a-queep. He began fingering delicately a row of glistening dials. Give me a fountain pen, he snapped. Someone handed him a fountain pen. He pulled a faulty piston out of the machine and inserted the pen in its place. That'll hold for 10 minutes, he said. Get on with the operation. A nurse hurried over and whispered to Rinshaw, and Mitty saw the man turn pale. Coriopsis has set in, said Renshaw nervously. If you would take over, Mitty. Mitty looked at him and at the craven figure of Benbo, who drank, and at the grave, uncertain faces of the two great specialists. <laughs> if you wish, he said. They slipped a white gown on him. He adjusted a mask and drew on thin gloves. Nurses handed him shining... Back it up, Matt! Look out for that Buick! Walter Mitty jammed on the brakes. Wrong lane, Mac, said the parking lot attendant, looking at Mitty closely. Gee, yeah, muttered Mitty. He began cautiously to back out of the lane marked exit only. Leave her sit there, said the attendant. I'll put her away. Mitty got out of the car. Hey, better leave the key. Oh, said Mitty, handing the man the ignition key. The attendant vaulted into the car, backed it up with insolent skill, and put it where it belonged. They're so damn cocky, thought Walter Mitty, walking along Main Street. They think they know everything. Once he had tried to take his chains off outside New Milford, and he had got them wound around the axles. A man had had to come out in a wrecking car and unwind them. A young, grinning garage man. And since then, Mrs. Mitty always made him drive to the garage to have the chains taken off. The next time, he thought, I'll wear my right arm in a sling. They won't grin at me then. I'll have my right arm and a sling, and they'll see I couldn't possibly take the chains off myself. <laughs> he kicked at the slush on the sidewalk. 
overshoes, he said to himself, and he began looking for a shoe store. When he came out into the street again with the overshoes and a box under his arm, Walter Mitty began to wonder what the other thing was his wife had told him to get. She had told him twice before they set out from their house for Waterbury. In a way, he hated these weekly trips to town. He was always getting something wrong. Kleenex, he thought. Mmm, squibs. Razor blades? No. Toothpaste. Toothbrush. Bicarbonate. Carborundum initiative. Referendum. He gave it up. But she would remember it. Where's the what's-its-name, she would ask. Don't tell me you forgot the what's-its-name. A newsboy went by shouting something about the Waterbury trial. Perhaps this will refresh your memory. The district attorney suddenly thrust a heavy automatic at the quiet figure on the witness stand. Have you ever seen this before? Walter Mitty took the gun and examined it expertly. This is my Webley Vickers, 5080, he said calmly. An excited buzz ran around the courtroom. The judge rapped for order. You are a crack shot with any sort of firearm, I believe, said the district attorney insinuatingly. Objection, shouted Mitty's attorney. We have shown that the defendant could not have fired the shot. We have shown that he wore his right arm in a sling on the night of the 14th of July. Walter Mitty raised his hand briefly, and the bickering attorneys were stilled. With any known make of gun, he said evenly, I could have killed Gregory Fitzhurst at 300 feet with my left hand. Pandemonium broke loose in the courtroom. A woman's scream rose above the bedlam, and suddenly a lovely dark-haired girl was in Walter Mitty's arms. The district attorney struck at her savagely, and without rising from his chair, Mitty let him have it on the point of the chin. You miserable cur. Puppy Biscuit, said Walter Mitty. He stopped walking, and the buildings of Waterbury rose up out of the misty courtroom and surrounded him again. A woman who was passing laughed. He said Puppy Biscuit, she said to her companion. That man said Puppy Biscuit to himself. Walter Mitty hurried on. He went into an A&P, not the first one he came to, but a smaller one farther up the street. I want some puppy biscuit for young dogs, he said to the clerk. Any special brand, sir? The greatest pistol shot in the world, thought for a moment. It says puppies bark for it on the box, said Walter Mitty. His wife would be through at the hairdressers in fifteen minutes, Mitty saw it looking at his watch unless they had trouble drying it. Sometimes they had trouble drying it. She didn't like to get to the hotel first. She would want him to be there, waiting for her as usual. He found a big leather chair in the lobby, facing a window, and he put the overshoes and the puppy biscuit on the floor beside it. He picked up an old copy of Liberty and sank down into the chair. Can Germany conquer the world through the air? Walter Mitty looked at the pictures of the bombing planes and of ruined streets. The cannonading has got the wind up in young Raleigh, sir, said the sergeant. Captain Mitty looked up at him through tousled hair. Get him to bed, he said wearily. With the others, I'll fly alone. But you can't, sir, said the sergeant anxiously. It takes two men to handle that bomber, and the archies are pounding hell out of the air. Von Richtman's circus is between here and Solier. Somebody's got to get that ammunition dump, said Mitty. I'm going over. Spot of brandy? He poured a drink for the sergeant and one for himself. 
War thundered and whined around the dugout and battered at the door. There was a rending of wood and splinters flew through the room. Bit of a near thing, said Captain Mitty carelessly. The box barrage is closing in, said the sergeant. We only live once, sergeant, said Mitty with his faint fleeting smile. Or do we? He poured another brandy and tossed it off. Never see a man could hold his brandy like you, sir. Begging your pardon, sir. Captain Mitty stood up and strapped on his huge Webley Vickers automatic. It's forty kilometers through hell, sir, said the sergeant. Mitty finished one last brandy. After all, he said softly, what isn't? The pounding of the cannon increased. There was the rat-tat-tatting of the machine guns. And from somewhere came the menacing pocketa of the new flamethrowers. Walter Mitty walked to the door of the dugout, humming, Oh, pray de ma blonde. He turned and waved to the sergeant. Cheerio, he said. Something struck his shoulder. I've been looking all over this hotel for you, said Mrs. Mitty. Why do you have to hide in this old chair? How did you expect me to find you? Things close in, said Walter Mitty vaguely. What? Mrs. Mitty said. Did you get the what's-its-name? The puppy biscuit? What's in that box? Overshoes, said Mitty. Couldn't you have put them on in the store? I was thinking, said Walter Mitty. Does it ever occur to you that I am sometimes thinking? She looked at him. I'm going to take your temperature when I get you home, she said. They went out through the revolving doors that made a faintly derisive whistling sound when you pushed them. It was two blocks to the parking lot. At the drugstore on the corner, she said, Oh, wait for me. I forgot something. I won't be a minute. She was more than a minute. Walter Mitty lighted a cigarette. It began to rain. Rain with sleet in it. He stood up against the wall of the drugstore, smoking. He put his shoulders back and his heels together. To hell with the handkerchief, said Walter Mitty scornfully. He took one last drag on his cigarette, snapped it away. Then, with that faint, fleeting smile playing about his lips, he faced the firing squad, erect and motionless, proud and disdainful, Walter Mitty the undefeated, inscrutable to the last. Secret Life of Walter Mitty was first published in The New Yorker in 1930. Its fantastic departures from everyday life have captured the minds of people across the globe for generations, spawning two film adaptations which, to be honest, have little to do with the short story beyond the imagined escapes. James Thurber, born in 1894, was an American cartoonist, author, humorist, journalist, playwright, children's book author, and celebrated wit primarily working with The New Yorker through the 1950s. He was one of the most popular humorists of his time, as he celebrated the comic frustrations and eccentricities of ordinary people. When Thurber was seven years old, he and one of his brothers were playing a game of William Tell when his brother shot James in the eye with an arrow. He lost that eye, and the injury later caused him to become almost entirely blind. He was unable to participate in sports and other activities in his childhood because of this injury, 
but he developed a creative mind which he used to express himself in writings. Keith Olbermann read excerpts from Thurber's short stories during the closing segment of his MSNBC program on Fridays, which he called Fridays with Thurber. Reintroducing this recently for the current COVID-19 pandemic, reading Thurber stories daily at 8 p.m. Eastern on Twitter. Keith said of his love of Thurber, My father was in the hospital, and every night when I visited him, I read aloud to him, James Thurber, and one night he said, You really should do that on your show. I began to read Thurber once a week on television, and continue to do so whenever and wherever I can. I'm happy to say that this has sparked a mini-revival, which I hope erupts in a full-scale, newfound appreciation for a man whose writings are nearly perfect. Let me start by saying that I am a devotee of the late, great Shirley Jackson. First her spellbinding The Haunting of Hill House, then her short stories, the gothic tale We've Always Lived in the Castle, and of course her classic The Lottery. Her deeply humane works rung the gamut from the heartfelt to the horrifying, influencing authors such as Neil Gaiman, Stephen King, and Joyce Carol Oates. By the time The Haunting of Hill House had been published, Jackson suffered numerous health problems. A smoker with chronic asthma, Jackson was prescribed barbiturates and amphetamines, as well as developing an increasing abuse of alcohol. In 1965, Jackson died in her sleep at her home in North Beddington, Vermont, at the age of 48. Jackson first gained recognition for this next story, The Lottery. Published in The New Yorker in 1948, Jackson was bombarded by hate mail throughout the summer of its publication. The New Yorker said it was the most hate mail the magazine had ever received in response to a work of fiction, with readers demanding an explanation of the situation in the story. Jackson said, Of the 300 odd letters that I received that summer, I could only count 13 that spoke kindly to me, and they were mostly from friends. Even my mother scolded me. The tale struck a national chord, and continues to to this day, begging us to consider systemic truths in the age of dissonance. The Lottery by Shirley Jackson, as read by Sherva Maynard. The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny, with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely, and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square between the post office and the bank around 10 o'clock. In some towns, there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 26th. But in this village, where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours. So it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer, and the feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still of the classroom and the teacher of books and reprimands. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones, and the other boys soon followed his example, selecting the smoothest and roundest stones. Bobby and Harry Jones and Dickie Delacroix the villagers pronounced this name Delacroix, eventually made a great pile of stones in the corner of the square and guarded it against the raids of the other boys. The girls stood aside, talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at the boys, and the very small children rolled in the dust or clung to the hands of their older brothers or sisters. 
Soon the men begin to gather, surveying their own children, speaking of planting and rain, tractors and taxes. They stood together away from the pile of stones in the corner, and their jokes were quiet, and they smiled rather than laughed. The women, wearing faded house dresses and sweaters, came shortly after their menfolk. They greeted one another and exchanged bits of gossip as they went to join their husbands. Soon the women, standing by their husbands, began to call to their children, and the children came reluctantly, having to be called four or five times. Bobby Martin ducked under his mother's grasping hand and ran, laughing, back to the pile of stones. His father spoke up sharply, and Bobby came quickly and took his place between his father and his oldest brother. The lottery was conducted, as were the square dances, the teenage club, the Halloween program, by Mr. Summers, who had time and energy to devote to civic activities. He was a round-faced, jovial man, and he ran the coal business. And people were sorry for him because he had no children and his wife was a scold. When he arrived in the square, carrying the black wooden box, there was a murmur of conversation among the villagers, and he waved and called, Little late today, folks! The postmaster, Mr. Graves, followed him, carrying a three-legged stool, and the stool was put in the center of the square, and Mr. Summers set the black box down on it. The villagers kept their distance, leaving a space between themselves and the stool. And when Mr. Summers said, Some of you fellows want to give me a hand? There was a hesitation. Before two men, Mr. Martin and his oldest son, Baxter, came forward to hold the box steady on the stool, while Mr. Summers stirred up the papers inside it. The original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Warner, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Summers spoke frequently to the villagers about making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as much tradition as was represented by the black box. There was a story that the present box had been made with some pieces of the box that had preceded it, the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Every year after the lottery, Mr. Summers began talking again about a new box, but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without anything's being done. The black box grew shabbier each year. By now, it was no longer completely black, but splintered badly along one side to show the original wood color, and in some places faded or stained. Mr. Martin and his oldest son, Baxter, held the black box securely on the stool until Mr. Summers had stirred the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded, Mr. Summers had been successful in having slips of paper substituted for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood, Mr. Summers had argued, had been all very well when the village was tiny, but now that the population was more than 300 and likely to keep on growing, it was necessary to use something that would fit more easily into the black box. The night before the lottery, Mr. Summers and Mr. Graves made up the slips of paper and put them in the box and it was then taken to the safe of Mr. Summers' coal company and locked up until Mr. Summers was ready to take it to the square next morning. The rest of the year, the box was put away, sometimes one place, sometimes another. It had spent one year in Mr. Graves' barn, and another year underfoot in the post office, and sometimes it was set on a shelf in the Martin grocery and left there. There was a great deal of fussing to be done before Mr. Summers declared the lottery open. There were the lists to make up of heads of families, heads of households in each family, members of each household in each family. There was the proper swearing-in of Mr. Summers by the postmaster as the official of the lottery. 
At one time, some people remembered, there had been a recital of some sort performed by the official of the lottery, a perfunctory, tuneless chant that had been rattled off duly each year. Some people believed that the official of the lottery used to stand just so when he said or sang it. Others believed that he was supposed to walk among the people. But years and years ago, this part of the ritual had been allowed to lapse. There had been also a ritual salute, which the official of the lottery had had to use in addressing each person who came up to draw from the box. But this also had changed with time. Until now, it was felt necessary only for the official to speak to each person approaching. Mr. Summers was very good at all of this. In his clean white shirt and blue jeans, with one hand resting carelessly on the black box, he seemed very proper and important as he talked interminably to Mr. Graves and the Martins. Just as Mr. Martins finally left off talking and turned to the assembled villagers, Mrs. Hutchinson came hurriedly along the path to the square, her sweater thrown over her shoulders, and slid into place in the back of the crowd. Oh, clean, forgot what day it was, she said to Mrs. Delacroix, who stood next to her, and they both laughed softly. Thought my old man was out back stacking wood, Mrs. Hutchinson went on, and then I looked out the window and the kids was gone, and then I remembered it was the 27th, and I came a-running. She dried her hands on her apron, and Mrs. Delacroix said, you're in time, though, they're still talking away up there. Mrs. Hutchinson craned her neck to see through the crowd and found her husband and children standing near the front. She tapped Mrs. Delacroix on the arm as a farewell and began to make her way through the crowd. The people separated good-humoredly to let her through. Two or three said in voices just loud enough to be heard across the crowd, Here comes your Mrs. Hutchinson, and Bill, she made it after all. Mrs. Hutchinson reached her husband, and Mr. Summers, who had been waiting, said cheerfully, Thought we were going to have to get on without you, Tessie. Mrs. Hutchinson said, grinning, wouldn't have me leave my dishes in the sink now, would you, Joe? And soft laughter ran through the crowd as the people stirred back into position after Mrs. Hutchinson's arrival. Well, now, Mr. Summers said soberly, guess we better get started, get this over with so as we can go back to work. Anybody ate here? Dunbar, several people said. Dunbar, Dunbar! Mr. Summers consulted his list. Clyde Dunbar, he said. That's right, he's broke his leg, hasn't he? Who's drawing for him? Me, I guess, a woman said, and Mr. Summers turned to look at her. Wife draws for her husband, Mr. Summers said. Don't you have a grown boy to do it for you, Janie? Although Mr. Summers and everyone else in the village knew the answer perfectly well, it was the business of the official of the lottery to ask such questions formally. Mr. Summers waited with an expression of polite interest while Mrs. Dunbar answered. Horace is not but sixteen yet, Mrs. Dunbar said regretfully. Guess I gotta fill in for the old man this year. Right, Mr. Summers said. He made a note on the list he was holding. Then he asked, Watson boy drawing this year? A tall boy in the crowd raised his hand. Here, he said, I'm drawing for my mother and me. He blinked his eyes nervously and ducked his head as several voices in the crowd said things like, Good fella, Jack, and glad to see your mother's got a man to do it. Well, Mr. Summers said, guess that's everyone. Old man Warner make it? Here, a voice said, and Mr. Summers nodded. A sudden hush fell on the crowd as Mr. Summers cleared his throat and looked at the list. <clears throat> All ready, he called. Now I'll read the names, heads of families first. The men come up and take a paper out of the box. Keep the paper folded in your hand without looking at it until everyone has had a turn. Everything clear? The people had done it so many times that they only half listened to the directions. 
Most of them were quiet, wetting their lips, not looking around. Then Mr. Summers raised one hand high and said, Adams! A man disengaged himself from the crowd and came forward. Hi, Steve, Mr. Summers said, and Mr. Adams said, Hi, Joe. They grinned at one another humorlessly and nervously. Then Mr. Adams reached into the black box and took out a folded paper. He held it firmly by one corner as he turned and went hastily back to his place in the crowd, where he stood a little apart from his family, not looking down at his hand. Alan, Mr. Summers said. Anderson? Bentham? Seems like there's no time at all between lotteries anymore, Mrs. Delacroix said to Mrs. Graves in the back row. Seems like we got through with the last one only last week. Time sure goes fast, Mrs. Graves said. Clark! Delacroix! There goes my old man, Mrs. Delacroix said. She held her breath while her husband went forward. Dunbar, Mr. Summers said. And Mrs. Dunbar went steadily to the box while one of the women said, Go on, Janie. And another said, There she goes. We're next, Mrs. Graves said. She watched while Mr. Graves came around from the side of the box, greeted Mr. Summers gravely, and selected a slip of paper from the box. By now, all through the crowd, there were men holding the small folded papers in their large hands, turning them over and over nervously. Mrs. Dunbar and her two sons stood together, Mrs. Dunbar holding the slip of paper. Herbert! Hutchinson! Get up there, Bill, Mrs. Hutchinson said, and the people near her laughed. Jones! They do say, Mr. Adams said to old man Warner, who stood next to him, that over in the North Village, they're talking of giving up the lottery. Old man Warner snorted. Pack of crazy fools, he said. Listen to the young folks. Nothing's good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to living in caves. Nobody work anymore. Live that way for a while. Used to be a saying about lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. First thing you know, we'd all be eating stewed chickweed and acorns. There's always been a lottery, he added petulantly. Bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking with everybody. Some places have already quit lotteries, Mrs. Adams said. Nothing but trouble in that, old man Warner said stoutly. Pack of young fools. Martin! And Bobby Martin watched his father go forward. Overdyke! Percy! I wish they'd hurry, Mrs. Dunbar said to her older son. I wish they'd hurry. They're almost through, her son said. You get ready to run tell Dad, Mrs. Dunbar said. Mr. Summers called his own name and then stepped forward precisely and selected a slip from the box. Then he called, Warner! 77th year I've been in the lottery, old man Warner said as he went through the crowd. 77th time! Watson! The tall boy came awkwardly through the crowd. Someone said, don't be nervous, Jack. And Mr. Summers said, take your time, son. Zanini! After that, there was a long pause, a breathless pause, until Mr. Summers, holding his slip of paper in the air, said, All right, fellas. For a minute, no one moved, and then all the slips of paper were opened. Suddenly, all the women began to speak at once, saying, Who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then the voices began to say, It's Hutchinson. It's Bill. Bill Hutchinson's got it. Go tell your father, Mrs. Dunbar said to her older son. People began to look around to see the Hutchinsons. Bill Hutchinson was standing quiet, staring down at the paper in his hand. Suddenly, Tessie Hutchinson shouted to Mr. Summers, You didn't give him time enough to take any paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. Be a good sport, Tessie, Mrs. Delacroix called. And Mrs. Graves said, All of us took the same chance. Shut up, Tessie, Bill Hutchinson said. Well, everyone, Mr. Summers said, That was done pretty fast, and now we've got to be hurrying a little more to get done in time. 
He consulted his next list. Bill, he said, you draw for the Hutchinson family. You got any other households in the Hutchinsons? There's Don and Eva, Mrs. Hutchinson yelled. Make them take their chance. Daughters draw with their husbands' families, Tessie, Mr. Summers said gently. You know that as well as anyone else. It wasn't fair, Tessie said. I guess not, Joe, Bill Hutchinson said regretfully. My daughter draws with her husband's family. That's only fair, and I've got no other family except the kids. Then, as far as drawing for families is concerned, it's you, Mr. Summers said in explanation. And as far as drawing for households is concerned, that's you too, right? Right, Bill Hutchinson said. How many kids, Bill? Mr. Summers asked formally. Three, Bill Hutchinson said. There's Bill Jr. and Nancy and little Dave and Tessie and me. All right, then, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you got their tickets back? Mr. Graves nodded and held up the slips of paper. Put them in the box, then, Mr. Summers directed. Take bills and put it in. I think we ought to start over, Mrs. Hutchinson said as quietly as she could. I tell you, it wasn't fair. You didn't give him time enough to choose. Everybody saw that. Mr. Graves had selected the five slips and put them in the box, and he dropped all the papers but those onto the ground, where the breeze caught them and lifted them off. Listen, everybody, Mrs. Hutchinson was saying to the people around her. Ready, Bill? Mr. Summers asked. And Bill Hutchinson, with one quick glance around at his wife and children, nodded. Remember, Mr. Summers said, take the slips and keep them folded until each person has taken one. Harry, you help little Dave. Mr. Graves took the hand of the little boy who had come willingly with him up to the box. Take a paper out of the box, Davy, Mr. Summers said. Davy put his hand into the box and laughed. Take just one paper, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you hold it for him. Mr. Graves took the child's hand and removed the folded paper from the tight fist and held it while little Dave stood next to him and looked up at him wonderingly. Nancy first, Mr. Summers said. Nancy was 12, and her school friends breathed heavily as she went forward, switching her skirt, and took a slip daintily from the box. Bill Jr., Mr. Summers said. And Billy, his face red and his feet over large, nearly knocked the box over as he got a paper out. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. She hesitated for a minute looking around defiantly, and then set her lips and went up to the box. She snatched a paper out and held it behind her. Bill, Mr. Summers said, and Bill Hutchinson reached into the box and felt around, bringing his hand out at last with the slip of paper in it. The crowd was quiet. A girl whispered, I hope it's not Nancy, and the sound of the whisper reached the edges of the crowd. It's not the way it used to be, old man Warner said clearly. People ain't the way they used to be. All right, Mr. Summers said. Open the papers. Harry, you open little Dave's. Mr. Graves opened the slip of paper, and there was a general sigh through the crowd as he held it up, and everyone could see that it was blank. Nancy and Bill Jr. opened theirs at the same time, and both beamed and laughed, turning around to the crowd and holding their slips of paper above their heads. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. There was a pause. And then Mr. Summers looked at Bill Hutchinson, and Bill unfolded his paper and showed it. It was blank. It's Tessie, Mr. Summers said, and his voice was hushed. Show us her paper, Bill. Bill Hutchinson went over to his wife and forced the slip of paper out of her hand. It had a black spot on it. The black spot Mr. Summers had made the night before with the heavy pencil in the coal company office. Bill Hutchinson held it up, and there was a stir in the crowd. All right, folks, Mr. Summers said, let's finish quickly. Although the villagers had forgotten the ritual and lost the original black box, they still remembered to use stones. 
The pile of stones the boys had made earlier was ready. There were stones on the ground with the blowing scraps of paper that had come out of the box. Mrs. Delacroix selected a stone so large she had to pick it up with both hands and turned to Mrs. Dunbar. Come on, she said. Hurry up. Mrs. Dunbar had small stones in both hands, and she said, gasping for breath, I can't run at all. You have to go ahead, and I'll catch up with you. The children had stones already, and someone gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. Tessie Hutchinson was in the corner of a cleared space by now, and she held her hands out desperately as the villagers moved in on her. It isn't fair, she said. A stone hit her on the side of the head. Old man Warner was saying, come on, come on, everyone. Steve Adams was in the front of the crowd of villagers, and Mrs. Graves beside him. It isn't fair! It isn't right! Mrs. Hutchinson screamed, and then they were upon her. Lev Luntz, born in 1901, was a Russian playwright, prose writer, and critic. He was a founding member of the Serapian Brothers, a group of young writers who emerged from the literary studio at the House of Arts in Petrograd. Highly active in the years 1919 to 1924, he completed five plays, two screenplays for the silent film, eight articles on the theater, one novella, a dozen stories, and a dozen essays, in addition to learning languages and completing his undergraduate courses. An outspoken critic of Soviet literature, Luntz wrote a manifesto stating, Too long and painfully has social commitment ruled Russian literature. It is time to say that a non-communist story may lack talent, but also may possess genius. Luntz asserted that plot, action, and good composition would win the approval of proletarian readers and theatergoers sooner than would a proper political message. Party critics, including the head of the censorship board, debated with Luntz in print. The Commissar of Education banned his plays. The party closed down the House of Arts and turned it into an apartment complex, in large part because of the free spirit of the Serapian brothers who held their meetings there. Luntz did not recant, but the harsh conditions of the time and his hectic literary activity thoroughly exhausted him and ruined his health, and he sought medical care abroad in June 1923. After several months in a sanatorium in southern Germany, he died of heart failure and a brain embolism in the city hospital of Hamburg, a week after his 23rd birthday. After his death, his works were censored in Russia for the full extent of the Soviet period, but he was remembered for his daring defense of creative freedom against Bolshevik party demands for political commitment, causing the American scholar Victor Ehrlich to call his work the most forthright plea for creative freedom to be found in the annals of Soviet literature. Finally, in 2003 and 2007, well after the collapse of the Soviet Union, his complete works were published in Russia. I found my copy of the hilarious satire, outgoing paper number 27, in what I believe is its first English translation, in a 2011 anthology of Russian short stories. So, here it is. Outgoing paper number 27, by Lev Luntz, as read by Chip Sherman. January 3rd, 1922, nighttime. I consider today a great day, because today it dawned on me what would make my name famous and earn eternal gratitude for me from my grateful 
descendants. I got up at 8 o'clock in the morning, but here I must make a small digression and point out that I slept badly last night, because since yesterday I have been under the influence of a passionate speech by my director, and all night I thought about the new basis. Returning to the thread of my narration, I hasten to note that since getting up this morning, I have continued to think about the new basis. I came to work exactly at 10 o'clock. To my great indignation, I discovered that none of the office workers were in their places. In order to ascertain the correctness of my indignation, I read the September 7th order from the director of the Department of Political Enlightenment, in which it is stated that work in the Department of Political Enlightenment is structured on a new basis. This is not the new basis which was spoken of yesterday, but the old one, and that every employee must get to work at exactly 10 o'clock. Those who arrive late are to be sent to the Palace of Labor as deserters from their designated jobs. As office manager, I considered it my duty to read this order to everyone who was late, to which everyone replied that they already knew it by heart. If they knew it by heart, then why were they late? My whole day was filled with annoying things. Thus, in the periodical press department, I discovered an irregularity, consisting of the fact that it had distributed papers not to 43, but to 42 offices of record. But the most distressing thing awaited me at 25 minutes past three, namely, Baranoff, the club instructor, appeared in the office for no special reason, in spite of the fact that there is a sign on the door that reads, no entry without a special reason. And after appearing without a special reason, he began to converse with the typist, which kept her from working, and when I began to argue that such behavior was unworthy of a communist, he told me to go to hell and that he knew his communist duty better than me because I was a paper pusher. In response, I answered that I was an honest proletarian worker. In response, he said, like, hell, I was a proletarian worker if I served for 20 years as a record keeper in the Senate. Then I withdrew to my desk and began to write a report to the director of the Department of Political Enlightenment. And it is at this point that a great idea suddenly struck me. Namely, we are proposing to conduct a radical restructuring of our Department of Political Enlightenment. But how can we reorganize if the entire institution consists of an irresponsible element? Therefore, it is impossible to reorganize. But we have to reorganize because such is the logic of revolutionary life. Therefore, it is necessary to reorganize the workers themselves. In other words, the citizens on a new basis. Such is the remarkable conclusion which my line of reasoning reached. I immediately understood the total profundity of the discovery I had made. Greatly excited, I laid aside my report and tried to do the work at hand but could not. January 4th, morning. Slept badly last night. Decided to submit a memorandum to the Council of People's Commissars, for I feel that the makeover of citizens on a new basis must be carried out on a broad government scale. January 5th, morning. Slept badly last night. Decided that the reorganization of citizens must be carried out on a world, in other words, Cosmic scale. The same day, evening. After coming home, I immediately sat down at my desk and began to compose a memorandum. But reaching the practical part, I was forced to stop because my line of reasoning had stopped as well. Namely, I did not know what kind of matter to turn the citizens into and how. My line of reasoning had just reached that point when my wife, greatly excited, suddenly burst in. Her cheeks were glowing red and her chest was heaving. She informed me that a hypnotist had moved into our building, who was now demonstrating wondrous things on the premises of the housing office of the poor. 
I objected to this and said to her that according to the applicable decrees, no wondrous things were possible. On entering the council of the people's commissar's premises, I witnessed the following scene. The room was filled with people. In the corner stood a suspicious-looking man, and as he moved his hands above the head of a sleeping person, he ordered him to do this and that. Then I stepped forward and gave a speech pertinent to the current moment. Then those present began to curse me with words that should not be repeated in written form. The hypnotist began to stare at me intently, and I began to feel sleepy after which I ceased remembering anything. On coming to, I saw that people were laughing, and the hypnotist was smiling triumphantly. It turns out that he had put me to sleep and turned me into a donkey, and I hee-hawed like a donkey, and when I was given hay, I enjoyed it greatly. Made indignant by such an insult, I announced that I would dispatch the hypnotist to the checker to which he answered that he was not afraid of me because he had a document from the Commissariat of Public Health. Then I departed, accompanied by my weeping wife. The same day, night. This evening is a great evening, for today I have found the missing link in my line of reasoning. A donkey, I thought, is a useless animal, but it is possible to transform a citizen into a cow and thereby solve the dairy crisis or transform a person sentenced to forced labor into a horse and give him to the Department of Motor and Horse Transportation. But all this is for the unreliable element, for the bourgeoisie and their stooges, for a cow, donkey, and horse are not higher matter. What can one transform honest workers into? But here, my line of reasoning was interrupted by a thought. Do I have the right to seek the aid of a hypnotist? And does seeking such aid not contradict the established world view? But here I remembered that the use of a hypnotist was sanctioned by the Commissariat of Public Health, and I calmed down. New possibilities opened before my eyes. The Commissariat of Public Health has registries of all hypnotists, organizes short-term hypnotism studios, and produces a cadre of shock worker hypnotists who act on the orders of a higher authority. January 6th. After work. At two in the afternoon, the director of the Department of Political Enlightenment summoned us executives into his office in order to acquaint us with his project for the restructuring of the Department of Political Enlightenment on a new basis. Its essence can be surmised as follows. The initiative of the masses is placed at the base, and in order to raise the masses, the institution of managers is eliminated. Namely, the director of the Department of Political Enlightenment remains at the head of the institution, and all the remaining directors of sub-departments, sections, and subsections are renamed senior instructors. This way, the Department of Enlightenment will draw closer to the masses, for the masses do not trust directors. The project was met by those at the meeting enthusiastically. Then the system of registries and files is reworked and their number increases by 40%. Similarly, the number of forms which every worker is required to complete increases from 10 to 16. Furthermore, oral explanations between directors and subordinates are abolished, and all dealings between them take place in the form of written reports kept in special registries with a special numbering system. All of these suggestions were also met by the people at the meeting enthusiastically. But Baranov... The club instructor declared that this whole new basis would not lead to anything and only increase the amount of red tape and paper. Then I, in spite of the indignation that constricted my chest and would not allow me to speak, took the floor. And in short but strong phrases accused Baranov, the club instructor, of having a bourgeois worldview. 
Because proper record keeping based on proper records management is the basis of structuring something and consequently paper is... But here my voice broke off and I lost my ability to speak for at that moment a great idea suddenly struck me. The higher matter into which citizens are to be transformed is paper. I immediately expounded this thought in a memorandum arguing in the following manner. First, paper is thin matter. In other words, a higher matter. Second, paper is matter that lends itself easily to record keeping. Third, paper is matter, and in this respect is now highly valued by Soviet Russia, which has experienced a severe material crisis. Having set forth my main ideas, I moved to the practical part. While doing so, my enthusiasm grew and grew. Words sang under my pen and made for wondrous harmony. I was becoming a poet. The numerous advantages of a cosmic scale appeared before my enraptured eyes. First and foremost, in other words, the first place, the struggle on all fronts becomes easier. For example, the commander of a division or even of an entire army can turn his Red Army men into bits of paper. And, having them packed into a suitcase, he can make his way into the rear of the white bandits, and then, by transforming the papers back into human form, he can attack the enemy from the rear. In the second place, food, fuel, and economic crises are solved, because paper has none of the needs peculiar to man. Under this point go the related questions of the struggle with criminals and women not accustomed to labor. Finally, in other words, the third place, thereby the paper crisis is solved, because citizens can be used as paper in the true meaning of the word. In general outline, such was my line of reasoning. After finishing, I stood up and excited set out for home. My wife asked me why I was so pale, but I did not say anything to her. For although I also support the platform of equal rights for women, I believe that women are of more inferior matter than men, and feel they should be turned into paper of lesser quality. January 7th I suspect that Baranov, the club instructor, suspects something. I've got to be careful. January 8th. Slept badly last night. Tried to figure out what to do. Could not think of anything. January 9th, evening. Today at work it dawned on me. Could I not hypnotize myself? In other words, turn myself into a piece of paper. After work, in a most agitated state of mind, I dashed off to the hypnotist for the purpose of receiving the appropriate instructions, which he gave me readily. It turns out that in order to turn yourself into some kind of matter, you have to think for a long time that you are that needed matter. Moreover, this experiment demands a long practice and a long period of silence and solitude. You have to think for three or four hours. January 10th, morning. An unexpected, fundamental obstacle appeared on my path. Namely, three or four hours of absolute silence are essential for the transformation, but my wife, being of inferior matter, cannot remain silent for more than three or four minutes. I thought I would try my first experiment at night when she fell asleep. But when she was in sleep's embrace, my wife prevented me from doing it because she snored. I waited until four o'clock in the morning in the hope that she would calm down, but under the influence of the excitement of the previous day, I fell asleep without ever noticing. The same day, evening. On arriving home, I sent my wife to her mother's in order to take advantage of her absence. After she left, I began to think I was a piece of paper.
But paper is an indefinite concept that includes various images, including some indecent ones, and it is uncomfortable in general to think about paper. In view of that, I decided to concentrate on some one product of paper production. After mature reflection, I decided on incoming or outgoing papers, which are the most delicate. In other words, the most ethereal phenomenon. Some time passed, and suddenly, oh, happiness! I felt my left foot rustle. This occurrence produced such a strong impression on me that I jumped up, thereby ruining the entire experiment, but the beginning had been made. More self-control is crucial. January 11th, evening. Today I achieved even greater results. Both my legs and the left side of my abdomen rustled. But as soon as the rustling started moving into my fingers, my wife suddenly returned and ruined everything. I do not know what to do. January 12th, morning. I slept badly for the whole time I tried to figure out what to do. And then a brilliant idea suddenly struck me. Namely, tomorrow night I'm on duty in the Department of Political Enlightenment, where I will transform myself into a piece of paper. Because transformation at home is connected with inconveniences. In the first place, my wife does not leave the house for more than three hours. In the second place, even if I transform myself into a piece of paper at home, I do not know what I am going to do next, for the appearance of an outgoing paper in the marital bed can arouse suspicion in my wife. Both of these inconveniences are eliminated if the experiment is conducted in the Department of Political Enlightenment. January 12th, Department of Political Enlightenment, Night. I am alone in the entire Department of Political Enlightenment. Only the wind is howling behind the walls, and a fire is crackling in the fireplace. My soul is full of heavenly visions. My heart is beating like a clock, and my chest is contracting. I decided to lie down on the desk so that after turning into an outgoing paper, I could lie in the place assigned to the above-mentioned papers because I do not like disorder. I decided to transform myself not into an actual outgoing paper, but into one for internal distribution, because an outgoing paper would go through all the channels. In other words, it would leave the premises of the Department of Political Enlightenment, which is undesirable for me. January 13th, dawn. And so, the great event has taken place, for I am writing these lines in a state of paper existence. The rays of the rising sun are flooding the room, birds are chirping outside the window, and in my soul, enveloped in a paper membrane, there is exultation. A great thing has taken place. <gasps> I feel that something has been written on me. <laughs> After several attempts, I succeed in overcoming the obstacles on my path and read myself, thereby solving the most difficult task posed by one foreign philosopher. Read yourself, and you will learn who you are. For distribution. R-S-F-S-R. Department of Political Enlightenment. 13 January, 1921. Number 37 to Distribution Center, to Petrograd. The Department of Political Enlightenment informs you that potatoes sent by you, in the amount of 12 pounds for satisfying the allowance of home front rations for workers of the Department of Political Enlightenment, turned out to be in a most 
inedible state. Manager of the Department of Political Enlightenment. Signature. After reading the aforementioned contents of the outgoing paper, I turned cold for the following reason. I wondered, if I was an outgoing paper for internal distribution, why was I lying on the director's desk? Papers for distribution are supposed to be in special registers. It goes without saying that if I were in my human form, in other words, in the form of office manager, I would quickly restore order. Now, I am afraid that the distribution of the outgoing paper will get lost. The cleaning women in the next room are making noise. Now the day that is here will begin. The same day. Evening. I am writing the lines which follow lying on the floor due to the reason set forth below. At three o'clock, a general meeting of the workers of the Department of Political Enlightenment took place in the director's office to discuss the topic of professional unions. Then my comrades began to disperse. And at this point, I had an unfortunate thing happen to me because Baranov, the club instructor, brushed me with his service jacket. And after I fell on the floor, he stepped on me with his foot, which caused me sharp pain. But this pain was deadened by an even more acute concern for the fate of outgoing paper number 37. For lying on the floor put it in danger of being thrown into the wastebasket. Then I remembered that tonight Baranov, the club instructor, would be on duty. What if he suspects that outgoing paper number 37 for internal distribution is the office manager? Since he hates me, he can cause me serious problems. In view of the aforementioned reasons, I decided to transform myself back into my human form and began concentrating on the fact that I am human. But half an hour had not even passed when a thought suddenly struck me that made me turn cold. Namely, if I turned into a human being, then paper number 37 for distribution would disappear. As office manager, I could not permit such an irregularity. Therefore, I decided to delay my transformation for the time being. The same day, night. It's dark, quiet. The clock on the wall is ticking. Baranov, the club instructor, has disappeared somewhere. He has probably left his post. I will have to submit a report to the director about this. My heart feels light and joyous. Now there can't be any discussions. In other words, debates concerning my invention. I have been in a state of paper existence for almost an entire day and have not experienced either hunger or thirst or any other needs without which not one person in human form can survive and an orderly line of reasoning unfolded before my shining eyes. All people are equal. In other words, all people are bits of paper. The ideal of mankind has been achieved. My chain of reasoning had just achieved this lofty and hallowed link when all of a sudden someone bent over me. It was Baranov, the club instructor. He was looking for something. Ah, here we go. He grabbed me by the head, in other words, by the edge of the paper, and ran his fingers over me. Soft paper, it'll do just fine. With these words, he picked me up and... It's dark. Quiet. The clock on the wall is ticking. Baranov, the club instructor, has disappeared somewhere. He probably left his post. I will have to submit a report to the director about this. My heart feels light and joyous. Now there cannot be any discussion, in other words, debates concerning my invention. I have been in a state of paper existence for almost an entire day. 
and have not experienced either hunger or thirst or any other needs without which not one person in human form can survive. And an orderly line of reasoning unfolded before my shining eyes. All people are equal. In other words, all people are bits of paper. The ideal of mankind has been achieved. My chain of reasoning had just achieved this lofty and hallowed link when all of a sudden someone bent over me. It was Baranoff, the club instructor. He was looking for something. Ah, here we go. He grabbed me by my head, in other words, by the edge of the paper, and ran his fingers over me. Soft paper, it'll do just fine. With these words, he picked me up and... The diary of the office manager breaks off here for unknown reasons. He disappeared without a trace. All efforts to find him came to naught. And thus we end our episode, not with a bang, but with the tearing of bureaucracy down to its shreds. Or maybe it's crumbs? This has been the Great Soul Podcast with Great Souls Kingdom Crumbs. Please let us know what you think in the comments on Facebook, over email, or heck, send us a video of you attempting to turn yourself into paper. We want to hear from you. It's been way too long. But we hope these stories will help to bring us closer. As most of you know, the Seagull Project is primarily a nonprofit theater ensemble based in Seattle, Washington. We, like every live performance organization in the world, have been heavily impacted by the COVID 19 pandemic. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please donate to our company to support programming like this in the future of our acting ensemble. You can find the link pretty much wherever you found this podcast. The Seagull Project is preparing for performing life once state restrictions begin to lift in earnest, and we will have small audience and private programming ready to help bridge the long gap before we can perform for large audiences again. If you are interested in this programming, then please reach out to us at info at theseagullproject.org. We'd love to chat. This is Gavin Reeb. Thank you for all your support. Let's keep telling stories.